0: My advice to any law student or new lawyer or old lawyer, I don't care, if you're practicing law, you need to read all the time. You need to read as much as you possibly can because, and I don't really care what you read, you know, you can read Stephen King or Tom Clancy or self-help books. It doesn't matter.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sick, form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment-focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study options. are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello
2: everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a current law student, future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Michael Chafdain, award-winning criminal defence attorney, speaker and author. Michael is also the founder of Chastain Jones Attorney's Office, based in Sacramento, and joins us today from his home in New Mexico. During the episode, Michael explains the importance of storytelling as a legal professional, provides top tips on how to become an award-winning lawyer, explains why law firms best operate as a business, and gives advice on how to have a healthy work-life balance. Michael, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. It's just wonderful to have you here with us today.
0: Well, I'm very pleased to be here.
2: Um, So I just wanted, before we crack on, um, to let the listeners know that – we have got uh, Michael Chastain joining us from New Mexico today. So it's um, it's morning where Michael is. So I'm hoping that he's got a cup of coffee or something with him. Um, I bought a cup of tea traditional, I suppose, for London. So, um, yeah, welcome to the Student Lawyer um, podcast, Michael.
0: Thank you very much. I I'm very much looking forward to this.
2: Excellent. So um, I thought that we could kick off the interview by asking you to introduce yourself and your career history to date, please.
0: Sure. So uh, my name is Mike Chastain. Um, I have been a lawyer for 37 years. Um, I graduated from Santa Clara University back in 1985, um, immediately, immediately went into the public defender's office um, in Santa Clara County, which is in San Jose, um, California, Uh, and stayed there almost 17 years. Um, That was during the big dot-com boom and the Bay Area kind of was going crazy. So um, we moved, my family and I moved to the Sacramento area. I joined a firm um, there, stayed for about six years, uh, all doing criminal defense. And then in 2007, opened my own firm um, and owned that until... Uh, the beginning of this year, the end of last year, in which I sold it and um, have remained of counsel to the firm and and uh, mostly doing business development kind of things for the firm. Uh, um, uh, but I moved out to New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and that's where I've been living uh, uh, pretty much full time since about September.
2: Wow, that's so interesting. What an incredible uh, career journey that you have. Um- so what was the main reason that you did choose to pursue a, a career as a criminal defense attorney?
0: Well, so, the, the, <laughs> you know, back in the 80s, things were a lot different than they are now as far as expenses. Um, college was very, very cheap. Um, law school really didn't cost very much. I thought it did. But, you know, um, in, in hindsight, it didn't. Um, I originally had worked for a personal injury firm, and that's what I wanted to pursue. But I also knew that um, to be a top-notch personal injury lawyer, you needed some trial experience. And the quickest way to get that would be either go to the district attorney or the public defender. Um, I wasn't really cut out to be a a district attorney. So um, I got a job in the public defender's office, uh, had great mentors there, um, some of the best lawyers that I've ever met. Um, and did a ton of trial work. I did twelve trials in my first year. Um, got to do death penalty cases by the time I was thirty. Um, so you know, I really moved up through the ranks. I, I had a lot of success, um, and you know, and and once once I started doing the criminal work, I, I realized that that really was my calling. And so that's you know all I've really done um, for the entire thirty seven years. I've dabbled in a couple other areas but um you know 99 of my practice has been uh, criminal defense for the entire time
2: wow um you mentioned that you uh had mentors there and i mean i have had uh i'm a career changer and i've had fantastic mentors in the past and i've had um some people that are around me that have perhaps not uh been as supportive and i've really seen the difference um difference in my um ability in, in these different things that i've done grown with the nurture of people um and as you mentioned that you have benefited from mentors in the past um how do you get them how do you get the most out of them
0: would you say um well the the simple answer is keep your mouth shut and listen you know um Although, you know, it 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 is important to ask questions, but the most important thing is is to just listen and um and you know recognize that uh you're gonna have your own style, you're gonna have your own way of do- doing things. So you you don't want to duplicate what someone else does, but you want to integrate it into you know your style and what works best for you. Um you know, I I had lots of different mentors that I I worked with. And, you know, and I and I I often say that, you know, there's some people who um I worked with who I didn't like and didn't, uh, you know, didn't have my best interest at hearts, but I learned a lot from them. So, you know, you can learn a lot. You know, virtually anybody can be a mentor to you. And, um, and, and that includes books, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a mentor of mine. I read, you know, his stories, um, many, many authors. uh, I I mean, I read a ton and you see behind me, you know, that's just a small fraction of my um, collection of books. Um, but every one of those that I've read, you know, is a mentor. I've learned something and, and really that's what it means is, is, you know, be open to learning from someone other than yourself, uh, the biggest mistake a new lawyer can make is think that they know anything because law school simply gives you the right to practice law. It doesn't teach you how to practice law.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's such a great um, piece of advice and one that is really relevant to law students, um, particularly because there's so many, um, uh, what, what how to call them? Um, organizations now that pair law students with mentors um, and I've, as I said benefited from mentors in the past but there have been people that I've worked with so it's like a natural thing but um yeah when you have dedicated time with a mentor who you've never really met before I think it's always great to know how um or how to kind of present yourself and, and bring yourself to a meeting um, in order to get the best out of mentors so thank you ever so much for sharing that. Um, so I wonder if you could talk to us about one of your most memorable cases, um you know, the facts of the case, the outcome and the impact it had on the law and maybe your career as well
0: um well, it, you know, over thirty seven years, I have had a lot of cases that that uh, made a difference, but the the one that that jumps out of mind was the first uh, death penalty case that I ever handled and, and um, it was very memorable for a number of reasons. One, the trial took four months, um, two, um, my father passed away in the middle of it. And so some really difficult decisions had to be made about whether we went forward or, you know, we mistried it. Um, and, uh, you know, the kindness of, of, of everybody, um during that period of time was was really important i mean at the, at the end of the day the my client was found guilty he was not given the death penalty um you know we won that that part of it uh which made a big difference in my life um you know not having somebody sitting on death row um it was it was it was, a, it was such an all encompassing case it, uh that yeah i think it made a big difference i mean i was uh, 20 uh I guess I was about 32, 31 or 32 when we tried that case. And so, you know, I was still relatively, you know, young. I'd been practicing for about seven years at that point. Um, it was a huge responsibility that my client was, you know, 25 and um, it was a big case. It got a lot of notoriety. The FBI was involved. There was just a lot of moving parts. Um, but that made a big, big impact um, on my uh, on my career. I mean, it was really the stepping stone of moving me to the next level of of uh, being a criminal defense lawyer. I'm
2: so sorry to hear about the passing of your father during that case. Um, Uh, you mentioned as well that it lasted four months. Now I'm quite new to, you know, criminal law and the death penalty. So is four months, a long time for a um, case of this kind to, to go on.
0: Uh, uh, it sure felt like it, you know, um, every, every case is, every case is different. Um, but you know, jury selection took about a month. Um, and you know, I've, tried two death penalty cases uh you know two um jury and both of them took about that amount of time so I, I think that that's a fairly common um period of time but it it you know it's a long it's a long uh it's a long haul um I mean you're going constantly you know you're working night and day for that entire period of time it's so I, I i don't know statistically if that would be about average but they were the longest cases i ever tried
2: I'm, at the moment i'm writing a dissertation on uh the technicalities of how the uk could withdraw from the echr and one of the things i'm looking into is um just as a kind of a little bit of a comparison is uh Trinidad and Tobago when they withdrew from the ACHR and looking at, you know, the reasons why they did it and wanted to implement the death penalty. And um, just reading up about that and seeing the effect it had on the um, on the uh, people that were on death row and how it was almost torture uh, having such a long period on death row... Um, yeah, it's something that I've never really thought about before, but you, you mentioned that it seemed like a long time for you. God knows what it feels like for all the people that um, are on death row, you know, waiting for their
0: trial. So, um, Well, you know, I think the thing that people forget about and, and the, the, the major opposition that I have to the death penalty is the jury. So, you know, imagine you're just, you know, some person who gets a notice, you know, you have to show up for jury duty. You you wind up sitting for four months on a case where ultimately you have to decide if someone lives or dies. Um, And, you you know, the impact on that jury, I mean, when we finished, every one of those jurors was crying, um, was traumatized. I met with about half of them after, um, and it had a profound effect on every single one of them. Um, and, you know, I, I I think the real question one has to ask is, is the vengeance of society, because that's that's all the death penalty is. It's just straight up revenge. Is the vengeance of society worth the, the torture that we put our citizens through to go through the process? And most people forget about the jury, but they're the ones who actually um, carry the burden and. Um, you know, I, I, I I'm I've never been opposed to the death penalty from the perspective of does the state have the right to kill its citizens? Yeah, we send people to war. We do all kinds of things. But the impact that it has on the jury is so profound and nobody ever talks about that. Um, and, and that's really where my opposition um, most strongly lies, is that we should just never ask that of our citizens to do to another human being.
2: That's such an interesting point. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so, after doing um, well, I've read that you have won five jury trials in a row, which is an exceptional record uh, and highly unusual in the field of criminal defence. Can you tell us what your secret is, and what sets us what sets apart the exceptional? Criminal defense attorneys from perhaps the more ordinary ones.
0: Um, I would say that the 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 biggest thing that has, uh, um, I, I would say the biggest thing is is the jury selection process. So you know what you have to consider is is in many ways you get to pick your audience, and. Understanding that process and under you know, going through the process, which I think very few lawyers do, but is um critical, uh, in my view, is understanding what kind of person you need to sit on that jury that would even consider voting not guilty for a child molest or a murder or whatever. What what are the what kind of person is that? Because you know that there's many people who have absolutely no problem convicting. So the question is who, what is the population and what are the core beliefs that people have that would allow them to uh, render a not guilty verdict? And so you have to actually think hard about that and and explore that. And, And what we do is we build an avatar of what the perfect juror would look like. And then we try to find People who fit that criteria, um, and you know, there's some stereotyping that you have to do. I mean, that's just part of of uh, the jury selection process. But to really, give some thought. I think most jurors, uh, most lawyers, just go in and you know, pick whoever shows up, and you know, kind of go on a gut feeling. But they don't know what they're looking for. And we spend a lot of time. Strategizing, who are we actually looking for? Who would be our perfect juror? And then we um, do our best to find them. And I, I think that's a, a big reason why I've had a lot of success. I mean, it last year, even though I had sold the firm, I stayed on because I had trials I had to finish, and I did three jury trials, won two of them. And you know, uh, haven't I haven't matched five in a row again? But I've won a lot of trials, um, and it's because you know we pick. Jurors that will listen to what we had to say. So, as an example, one of the trials I did, uh, my client shot this guy nine times, and he was charged with attempted murder, um, and it was a self-defense. Um, so, every juror on that jury was a gun owner and belonged to the NRA, and so strongly believed every one of them strongly believed in self-defense, the right to to, to protect yourself. As opposed to if we'd allowed jurors on there who were opposed to guns and thought that nobody should ever carry a gun and that kind of thing, you know, we'd have lost that trial. But because we knew exactly what we wanted, that was a pretty clear example. Um, We wanted gun owners who believed in self-defense. And that's what we got. And my client went home. Uh,
2: It wasn't 50 Cent who your
0: client shot, was it? He was shot nine times. (laughs) It was not, it was not. Um, and you know, and you know, one had to concede that the whole thing was a mess. I mean, none of it should have happened. Guns and drugs and alcohol never mix. But having said that, when this fellow pointed a gun at my client, you know, he had the right to defend himself and, um, and, and, and you know, that was the issue to prove that. But once we got over that hurdle and showed that, you know, it was, he did have a gun, um, you know, the jury came back pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so how can a person become skillful in selecting a jury? Is it something that they kind of teach you at law school? You know, are you just exceptionally good at it naturally? Um, can people take perhaps a, you know,
0: psychology degree or something? Um, well, they absolutely don't teach that in law school. I think, so, you know, my my advice to any Law student or new lawyer or old lawyer, I don't care. If you're practicing law, you need to read all the time. You need to read as much as you possibly can because and I don't really care what you read. You know, you can read Stephen King or Tom Clancy or self-help books. It doesn't matter. Um learning about people and understanding how people react. Uh, is a skill that you just develop over the the course of your life. If you are looking for that information, you know, if you just are are are, are asking the question, you know, well, how would this person react to to that, um, to this particular scenario? And the more that you read, I think, the more that you you learn those those skills. Now, there are certain, there definitely are um, seminars and classes where people will teach specific skills about jury selection and give their opinions about it and some of them are very good and some of them I you know I felt were not worth the effort um but you you don't know until you show up until you go and I went to lots of those kinds of seminars and I talked to lots of people but it's it's all about asking the right questions what you know the question that you want to be asking is what core beliefs does someone have to have to, to render the verdict I want? And if you ask that question, you know, your mind will start working on it and begin to come up with those ideas. And I, I think people just don't ask the right um, question enough, but, you know, because I think some lawyers think that, you know, because they're, they're articulate, they're going to cause someone to change their core beliefs And that's the biggest mistake, right? Somebody comes in and, you know, you think in in a 45-minute argument, you're going to change their core beliefs. So you're, you know, you just don't understand how all this works. You want to work with their core beliefs. Instead of trying to change that, you want to work with what do they already believe and how can you use that to get them to to where you want them to go? Um, uh, I mean, we see that in the politics around here all the time. Right. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not here to change anybody's mind. I'm here to use what they already believe to my advantage.
2: That is so interesting, Michael. So um, essentially, just by reading, doesn't matter what it is. By um, you know, reading books uh, with different characters, you start to pick up these characters' different perspectives, and you can apply that later on in life, you know, or walks of life to see other people's points of view. I love that. It's
0: very clever. Very clever. Yeah, you need you need to just build your wealth of knowledge. You know, reading law books all day long is not particularly helpful. I mean I haven't read a a law book in decades, but um just knowing about people because what do we do as lawyers is we're trying to to convince people to do what we what we want them to do. You know, and uh, and that's about persuasion and setting things up. Um, And that's, you know, I did a podcast yesterday where the the topic was storytelling. And at the end of the day, what do we do? We tell stories and you need to learn how to tell a story. Um, uh, You know, that's a key, a, a, a key thing, whether you're trying to convince a judge of something or the opposing counsel Um, or a jury, it's all about telling the story. Nobody cares about the legal stuff. What they care about is the story, you know, because that's what touches you emotionally. So storytelling is such a critical component. And the way you learn to tell stories is one to practice. Um, You know, you, you just practice, you just tell stories um, practice on your friends, practice on your family, you know, um, get good at telling a story that people, uh, care about and, and, uh, you know, keep it short and keep it, you know, to the point and, um, and you will be much more persuasive. And that's really what we're talking about is lawyers are about being persuasive.
2: Thank you ever so much for sharing that. I think that is fantastic advice. You know, um, I think the law students are always looking um to in well always being taught to be concise and it's just an absolute key takeaway and it can help um in you know arguments construct arguments and it can help with just presentation skills and it, it you know what you have just advised can help people draft emails as well and I just think it's so applicable to um your entire you know entire well professional um, life and personal one as well because, um, well, you don't want to be boring your friends half to death as well when you're chatting away to
0: them. Well, you know, what, what I always teach our our, our new lawyers in, in particular uh, um, is that there's two components to convincing someone. There, one is the how, you know, the legal thing. Do, does the judge have the ability to do what you want to do? Which is what most lawyers and law, and law students spend all their time talking about. And there's the why. Why should they do it? And you, in in my opinion, you should spend 80 percent of your time on the why and uh, a minimal amount of time on the how. You know, yeah. nobody wants to read the legalese. Nobody's going to go back and look at the cases. Nobody cares about that. What they care about is why should I do this? Sure. You, you know, what, and and if you spend your time, that's the storytelling. You know, why should I give this guy a break? Why should I let this guy go into a program? Why shouldn't I convict convict him? Why did he do what he did? You know, um, the, the how matters. That's the law part. But, it, you know, most lawyers and certainly most judges know the how. They know what the parameters of their discretion is. Then the question is, why should they do it? And that's where you want to spend your time.
1: I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment-focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses. Courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast.
2: What are your top tips for newly qualified attorneys when put on their first criminal um, arrest charge?
0: Um. Well, so the... the... The first tip is: is you need to ask lots of questions. You need to try to figure out why did your client. So, if you come from the assumption that your client is a a a decent, good person who just, you know, made a mistake or did something bad, and the question is, well, why? Why did they do something bad? Is you know, did they just go through a divorce? Did someone just die in their family and they're still in that grieving process, and so they're acting out, alcohol, drugs, what? what changed in their lives um because if you know that so if you know your classic drunk driving well it's 99 times out of 100 it's it's an alcohol problem right so what's the solution to the problem get them sober get them to AA or some sort of treatment but you got to ask the question because they're not going to come in and go hey I'm a drunk and that's why this happened no you you've got to ask the questions and you've got to dig down and, and find out really what happened so that you can help them and you're developing their story. So that when you go to the judge, you say, well, you know, judge, I mean, my, my client's daughter, you know, died and and he's still grieving and and that's why he's drinking. And, you know, and so what we're what we've done is we've come up with a program where we're dealing with his his grieving so that um, it'll address his drinking. And we don't need to hammer this guy and send him to jail or prison or whatever. We need to get him treatment. That's that's the story. Right. Um, That's a whole lot more compelling than, oh, judge, uh, you know, yeah, we just shouldn't send him to jail. You know, that that doesn't convince anybody. Right. So asking the right questions, digging deep, not being afraid to ask the questions and then developing the story um, and and focusing on the story. What is this? What happened? Why did this occur? And is there a way that you can help them not repeat the the uh, the incident?
2: So you have to kind of like humanize your um, your client.
0: Yeah, right. Because when the court calls it, it's, you know, people versus John Smith. Yeah. Well, you know, who's John Smith? Well, let me tell you who John Smith is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you the story of John Smith. And now it matters. And, you know, I'll tell you, I've had more. One of the things I always love to do when I when I have the opportunity is if I can put a picture of my client with his family at Disneyland or someplace like that. Oh, my goodness. You know, talk about humanizing somebody. You know, um pictures help. Uh there's 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 a number of ways to do it, but you got to ask the right questions. That's the starting point. And then learn the skills of telling a good story.
2: So um you've mentioned DUI charges and death penalty. You know, you you um work on a whole range of criminal defense matters. Um, which type of defense matters do you get the most job satisfaction from? Um, and why is this?
0: Well, so one of the things that our firm does um, is we do record clearances. So, in other words, someone gets in trouble, they've completed their period of probation or whatever, and then we go through and try to clean up their record. And for me, that's one of the most satisfying um, things is is to really let the client put it behind them. You know, get their record cleaned up so that they don't have to, you know, talk about it on a jury uh, or a job application. Um, that's really one of the most satisfying things I've had, you know, grown men just cry on my shoulder. They were so happy. Um, it, you know, I I tell clients this all the time is don't let this one event define your life. You know, this is not the defining moment of your life. Yeah. You screwed up and you made a mistake, but let's figure out a way to get around it. And that is kind of like putting the, the, um, period at the end of the sentence, you know, it, this is over, this is completely and 100% over um and that's that's really really satisfying
2: it must be the biggest weight off of their shoulders knowing that they can um you know start an absolute fresh with a, a blank slate um so yeah i can i can see why that gives you a lot of job satisfaction um so you mentioned as well that you were with um the attorney general for 17 years i got that correct.
0: Yeah, so I, I was with the public defender
2: so you must have really enjoyed it so why why did you decide to establish your own law firm after 17 years
0: well there were a couple of things that happened um the management of the public defender's office changed and uh that had an impact on on me and um the the bay area the san francisco bay area was going through a big change it was going through the in the in the early 2000 well Nine, 1999, 2000, 2001. It was going through the dot com boom, and the the price of homes was crazy expensive. Yeah, kids, traffic was just nutty. Um, and so for for quality of life, we decided to move to Sacramento, which didn't have a lot of those things going on. So it really was a quality of life move for us um, to get out of the Bay Area
2: and and why um, why establish your own business your own law firm um, instead of moving you know to to something else
0: uh so i did i did originally start with a uh, a very prestigious firm um what i saw was i wanted to have more control over what i was doing and my income and um uh, You know, there were a number of other factors. I I didn't feel like I had much of a future with that firm. Um, They weren't going to make me a partner. And I thought, you know, at that point, I'd been practicing for 23 years and I felt that I had earned that. So, you know, it was just kind of a clash of personalities. Um, So that was really the big reason. I, I never had intended on running my own firm. That was not in the game plan ever. Um, and I felt like I kind of got forced into it, but once I did, uh, you know, and I, and I struggled for several years. I mean, from the business perspective, cause while I had great mentors in the law, I didn't have any business mentors and it wasn't until I really, um, uh, began to invest time and money in business mentors and actually learn how to run a business. We went from a struggling firm that, you know, w- I wasn't quite sure how to pay the rent. To doing better than seven, seven figures a year on uh, gross revenue and ultimately put it in a position where I could sell it yeah. and 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 that's given me the ability to um you know, new chapter and different things.
2: That's fantastic. Uh, well, massive congratulations for everything that you've accomplished. Um, I know how difficult it can be to um, to take on something that is incredibly challenging and not being scared of it and, you know, really going for it and succeeding. So, um, yeah, I mean, it does take a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication, but, um, you know, it just goes to show if you do want something badly enough Um, and put the work in as well, you know, you can achieve just fantastic things. And you are a clear example of that. So, um, so, you know, thank you for being such an inspiration and I suppose motivation as well to so many uh, other people.
0: Well, thank you for saying that.
2: Um, So apart from being exceptionally good at the law, how, how do you build your professional reputation to win and retain business?
0: Uh, you know, that's that's the million dollar question for for most people. Um, I, I think one is you have to treat your clients really well. So you build a referral source. Um, and, and what that really means is thinking through the entire client experience from the moment that they call your firm or walk into your office. What do they see? What do they feel? What do they smell? Um, you know, to really think through that experience so that it's, it's the best experience that you can give them. They feel, I mean, I've been in lawyer's offices where, you know, it's kind of dank and dark and there's nothing on the walls and it kind of smells musty. And it's like, you know, do I really want to let this guy, you know, have an impact on my life? Our office, you know, we we really think through every, you know, everything that every plaque, every picture, everything that's on the wall. Uh, we use scented candles so that it has that, you know, that pleasant smell. So when you show up, you're feeling confident that you're in the right place. Um, so and then and then, you know, the, the biggest Complaint to the state bar is always failure to communicate with your client. So have a regular communication um, with your client, be being open and available to them. That doesn't mean that every time they call, you pick up the phone. That's a different thing, but that you're responsive. When they send you a message or when they call and leave a message, you get back to them in a timely manner with real information. You tell people what's going to happen before it happens. Um, so that they, they know what to expect. I mean, people hate uncertainty. So you do your best to avoid that as much. Um, so that, you know, that's part of it. I mean, marketing is a very challenging thing. Um, you know, everybody's, you know, sending you emails saying, I can put you in the first page of Google and all of that, you know, and you can spend a fortune and waste your money. The The, the other thing that's so critical is is that you have to, um, track the data of your firm. You need to know the numbers. You need to know how many leads are coming in and how many are, are qualified leads, how many are setting appointments, how many are showing, how many are hiring. You need to track all of that um, because that gives you, and where are those leads coming from? So you know how you're spending your money. Um, And is that lead source actually delivering? People will tell you, and they'll give you statistics. Oh, look, you know, your website's getting all these hits. Yeah, well, when you dig down, you go, "Well, these are all bots from Russia." You know, those aren't leads. Um, I don't care how many hits my website gets. What I care about is how many people are actually contacting us. Um, so, you know, having that data and we have a ton of that. How you're spending your money, where you're spending it, are you saving money? You always need to learn how to save money. And, and what this all comes back to is if you are worried about paying the rent, you are not focused on your clients. So you need to build your business because law, uh, uh, the practice of law is simply a business that provides legal services. I, you know, uh, these guys say I own a law firm. I'm like, well, I own a business that provides legal services and I'm profitable. How about you? Because yeah. most law firms aren't profitable if they're not businesses if they're not run like a business. So you got to run it like a business and you got to have profit at the end of the day and you got to have money set aside for those months that are bad. You know, um I mean COVID really impacted our industry like every other industry, right? Fortunately, we had a bunch of money st- stuck away for that rainy day. We didn't know what it was going to be, but we did not have to incur any debt. Excellent. Yeah, I know so many firms who wound up running their firm based on a on a credit card, and now they're now they have to pay it off. Yeah, we never had to pay it off, right? We had the money. Well, you've paid the interest rates. Right. Well, yeah, and, and 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 I understood that that's the way business works. You know, you have good months, you have bad months. It's a roller coaster. It's it's not a straight road. even even though brand has been very very good for our firm for for many years. Um, but any given month, you know, it's up and it's down, it's up and it's down. That's that's the way the line always goes. So. Yeah. You know, so those, those would be the big things.
2: I think that everything that you have just mentioned is such fantastic advice um, that I'm sure that people will be able to keep with them for, uh, you know, throughout their entire career um, and will help them, you know, win business, retain business throughout their whole career. Um, so thank you ever so much for sharing. Now, you are recognized as being one of uh, Sacramento's top criminal attorneys, you know, founder of your own law firm, published author. How do you ensure that you are putting or able to put a hundred percent into everything that you do to make sure that you know you're performing to the best of your ability and um, and avoid burnout? I mean, is it possible?
0: Well, it's it's absolutely possible. I mean, that the book I wrote legally is the ultimate guide and how to survive a law practice is all about that. That's, um, you know, you have to take care of yourself. Uh, you have to, you have to get enough sleep. You have to get exercise. You have to, you know, fuel your body, you know, so eat good food. I mean, if you're just eating junk all day long, you're not going to perform at your best. You need to learn how to avoid distractions. So, I mean, if you look at my office, you know, you will not see my cell phone. Biggest mistake people make is they got their cell phone sitting on their on their on their desk. Why? Why do you have your cell phone sitting on your desk? Because it is simply a distraction. It was built to be a distraction. So minimizing your distraction so you can be focused. And and you know, the 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 myth of multitasking is one of the great lies of our generation. Nobody multitasks. You cannot multitask. Your brain does it, What your brain does is it is it task switches. So you jump from one to the other to the other, and you think you're doing two things at the same time, but you're not. So to minimize that, do one thing at a time, do it well, and then move on to the next project. Um, and, and so, you know, for, for, and what that's all about is learning to control your cell phone, learning to control your email, learning to control all the tools that you have to work with but don't have them control you email you know everybody thinks that email requires a response immediately why uh for what possible reason i only look at my email once a day and i've been doing that for years you know and and i've taught people that mike only looks at his email once a day so if you think that you're going to get an immediate response you're going to be very disappointed and people just learn you know Don't don't send me something that needs to be responded to immediately unless if you call me and say, hey, I'm going to send you an email. This contract needs to be signed right away. Okay, that's fine. But just to send me something randomly, you know, I'll get to it when I get to it, you know. So you prioritize yourself and don't let your don't let your day or your your um, practice or your business be run by somebody else who just happens to have your email address.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro technique. So um, I'll be working on my computer. I'll have YouTube up and I'll play it and it will run to 15 minutes and then for 10 minutes I'll take a break. I might look at my phone then. Um, but as well, you're talking about not responding to email straight away. Um, I apply that to my WhatsApp messages as well. You no, know, I just said that I look at my phone maybe once an hour. If I read a WhatsApp message, um, sometimes I, I don't reply straight away. And I've taken off—you know—you can have the blue ticks to show that you've read it. I've taken that off um, because um, I don't. Because you know, as we were just talking about, I don't need to reply straight away, or sometimes I don't have the time. And it just by not showing the status of that. I don't feel as anxious about getting back to somebody straight away. Why should somebody feel anxious about, you know, replying a message um, straight away? But anyway, by removing it, it just, you know, add, removes that um, uh, kind of like probably need to reply straight away. So yeah, I agree with what you're saying and highly recommend to our listeners to, you know, be kind to yourself and, you um, Yeah, take that advice on board. And if you can change settings on your computer, on your phone to stop all these notifications, these push notifications coming through to have a little bit more peace of mind, then yes, I do recommend doing that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, you should should turn all the notifications off. You you know, it's it's again, this is about prioritizing yourself recognizing that you are just not at the beck and call of everybody who happens to have your WhatsApp address or your email address, you control your day. And if you keep looking at it, you know, whether you respond or not, you're letting somebody else control your day. So,
2: okay.
0: um, I, I mean, I think, I, I think the Pomodoro uh, approach is a, is a great starting point. Um, but I'd encourage you to use that 10 minutes and go for a walk as opposed to looking at your your cell phone. And then, you know, do your cell phone like once or twice a day. I mean, it's a tool, you know, and treat it like a tool as opposed to, and it's harder for your generation. I mean, I grew up without cell phones, right? So for me, you know, I've been seriously considering going back to just an old dumb flip phone um, because it annoys me actually to get all of this stuff. But business is run that way and I get it so I can't not have
2: you are you are completely right I mean I don't I don't need to look at my phone you know every 50 minutes and I could revert to um you know one of those really old Nokia 3210s I don't know if that's what you you've got over there as well. what you used to use but the thing that um turns me off that is how you have to press like one of the buttons three times to get just one one letter. So, um, yeah, the, the Nokia 210 is a no for me, but I will take your advice on board and um, go for a little walk or just even stand outside to get some fresh air because I'm sure that that will um, uh, give me a bit of a refresh and help me, you know, become a bit more focused again. Absolutely, definitely. Although, unfortunately, we haven't got advice of weather over here or advice uh, as weather as you do. Um, so, yeah, perhaps I'll hold off for the, until the summer for that walk. But, yeah, a peer out the window might just do me good.
0: Yeah, well, it was it was 18 degrees when I got up this morning. So, you know, you just have to learn how to deal with the cold. That's what it's actually
2: for. <laughs> so. Um, so do you have top tips for passing the California bar?
0: Uh, you know, I mean, the bars changed a lot. Um, when I took it, it was three days. Now it's only two days. They've lowered the score. Um, uh, but what I would say is, is, um, you know, treat studying for the bar, like a job. Um, I, I, you know, would get up in the morning. I would be at my desk at nine o'clock. I would study until noon and then I'd go play basketball. Um, for a couple hours have lunch and then study for a few more hours so I treated it like a job um you know it was cr- incredibly important that I passed because I had no other source of income so I needed that um but I I think that that th- that's it you know um improve your test taking skills um you know there, there's lots of courses that teach you how to take the multi-state and how to take you know a, a multiple choice, Uh, test to be more effective, even if you don't know the answer, you know, typically you can get rid of two of the answers and then you're left with a 50, 50 chance. So, um, you know, there, there's techniques, but um, you know, it's been 37 years since I took a bar exam. So, and I have no intention of taking another one. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Uh,
2: So I think that, you know, just putting in, in the hard work and, you know, not trying to cut corners will get you there in the end. Putting in that hard work and dedication.
0: I w- I would say this when it comes time to take the test. Don't cram at the end of the day. Don't study in the middle of the test. Um, get sleep. Be well rested. Um, sleep is seek. Sleep is the secret weapon to peak performance. If you are getting consistently good sleep um, you know, that your body needs, you will perform way better than if you're cramming all night, you know, uh, you know, study well in advance, learn the stuff and then take, you know, what I did is I took two days off before the bar exam and I didn't even open a book. I just, you know, enjoyed myself and, and rested and ate well. Um, so when I hit the the ground running, as they say, it, it used to be three days, it was an endurance event. And I and I watched a lot of my colleagues just disintegrate on day three. They just yeah. fell apart. Um I think so. that
2: you're really sensible. I mean, I've listened to a lot of uh word? neuroscience uh podcasts about uh cognitive enhancing your cognitive power. And when you are, clearly it's not working for me because I can't remember the name of the you know <laughs> the science. Um but <laughs> Uh, they talk about you know when you're revising when you're studying something. It's not until you stop and put it away and go to sleep when your brain is like um, breaking it all down and you, you you're learning it then. So very sensible getting that um, that uh, restful sleep before the exam and it's definitely something that I try to do as
0: well. Um, before I talk a lot about a lot of uh, uh, about that in my book is the ultimate guide in how to survive a law practice. I, I have three spots in here where I talk about the importance of sleep, because as I say, it's the secret weapon to, um, uh, peak performance. And, um, and, and most lawyers that I know just think it's, you know, sleep's optional, but sleep is not optional. Not if you want to perform at your top at your best.
2: Yeah. Um, For our listeners, I'm going to put links to Michael's book in the show notes. So if you want to check those out or purchase them, um, the links will be there for you to access that. Um, So we're approaching towards the end of the interview now. So, Mike, I've just got a couple of questions to ask you, uh, or a couple of questions remaining. What has been the highlights of your working week? Although, scratch that, I will just say, I wrote these questions probably at the end of a week. Today is Tuesday. So, uh, Mike, perhaps you could let us know what the highlight of your working week was last week. <laughs>
0: um, You know, I'm not sure you would categorize the highlight. But w- what I do on Friday mornings is I plan my next week. And um, I, I do that for two reasons. One, um, I, I want to control my day. So I plan my my week in advance of all the, you know, the big rocks that have to be done, meetings, podcasts, whatever it is. Um, I also include in there my exercise program, you know, what I'm going to do to the extent that when I'm going to do it. But I do that for two reasons. One, controlling your week. But the other is that if you do it on Friday morning and you, you you know, you have to review your past week, how did that go? And if you find that you you forgot to do something or you failed to get something done, you still have time to fix it. Right? You still got Friday, Saturday and Sunday to fix it. If you wait till Monday morning to plan your week, well, you can't fix what, you know, what you miss. So, um that's, you know, to me that's kind of a highlight is planning my week and I because I get to be creative. I get to decide. I got 24 hours in a day. I can put these things whenever I want. Um for the most part. Yeah. And, um, you know, when am I going to play my guitar? When am I going to meet up with my friends? When am I going to go for a bike ride? Um, when am I going to have these various things? And so I plan that out. And then, and then the key is that I honor that, you know, if if I said, you know, two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, I'm going to go for a bike ride. I honor that. Unless something really earth shattering comes up, which rarely happens. Um, I'm going to honor my commitment to myself, and I think this is all part about what I'm saying about prioritizing yourself, prioritizing um, what you need to do to to perform it at your at your very best.
2: Yeah, excellent. It sounds like you are very organized as well, which I think is um, a great skill for um, a lawyer to have. Now, I'm always so interested to learn how people do uh, create a schedule because I've tried multiple things, writing one down, having it on um, on the computer. Sometimes I've had both. How, how do you plan? How, what uh, apps or tools do you use?
0: Um. Well, I, so I, I mean, I have an online calendar because other people need to have access to that. And, you know, so I can have the link to the podcast or or the meeting or whatever, but primarily I use a journal and I just handwrite it in. I put in on this corner, what um, are the, are the time events? So a particular time I put in the one big thing that I need to get done that day. So uh, the book, the one thing I, I highly recommend that. You know, what is the one thing if I got it done today, I would call this a successful day. And then I leave room for, you know, other things that I'm gonna squeeze in um during the course of of the day. So like I have to set up a schedule for um, training for one of our new employees. So I I like the paper. I think that there's a lot of um and and there is some science behind, you know, actually handwriting as opposed to typing and and that kind of thing. Um but, the you know, my journal, I use for basically everything. I record everything that, that happens um, and uh, I put all of that stuff in there. Um, so th- that's the method that I've used. And I've used a lot of different things over the years. What I would say is that, you know, come up with a method that you like and don't be afraid to change it as time changes, you know. Um, so th- that's how I do it.
2: Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, final question: What advice would you give to your younger self?
0: Ooh, you know, um, money management. Um, my dad told me about that. I ignored him. There's a there's a great book called The Richest Man in Babylon, and uh, written in I think 1939. It's about saving. You know, a percentage of every dollar that comes in. Um, if I'd have done that, uh, boy, I'd have, you know, my financial situation would be even better. I mean, right now, you know, I, I started to employ that, but I employed it late. The compound, the compounding effect um, uh, of, you know, saving money and investing it and letting it work for you, I, I think that would be the one piece of advice I got. I, so I have to say, my dad told me, I just never mm-hmm. listened. So...
2: Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I will definitely take that piece of advice on board. And when you are talking about collecting data this a bit earlier in the podcast, I think that, that is a fantastic thing to do when you are looking after your finances, you know, looking at your bank balance every day to see what you're spending and where it's going. I think is a fantastic way to ensure that you um, are, you know, taking care of your money so yes collecting data top tip there as well um that you gave earlier on in the podcast um so as i said i have come to the end of my question so there is only really one thing left to for me to say uh, which is thank you so much for coming on the show it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and you have provided such you know incredible advice about studying careers skills throughout the entire episode so yeah, thank you so much for, um, for sharing all of that.
0: Well, you're, you're very welcome. And I'd be happy to come back anytime. I, you know, I, I feel like one of my missions now is to help other people not struggle as much as I did. Um, and I've been doing this for a long time, so, um, I've learned a lot.
2: Excellent. Thank you
0: for the opportunity.
2: Oh no, the pleasure is all ours. Absolutely. Um, and please do come back whenever you are free. Um, so for our listeners uh it's the week of thanksgiving michael are you um are you doing anything nice on on thursday
0: uh we're just having some friends over um and then i'm gonna go um and actually drive from here to san diego to pick up my grandson and he's gonna spend a uh, uh, couple weeks with us so uh, that's kind of my holiday
2: excellent well we're very, very thankful for you for coming on the show today. Um, And thank you for our listeners for tuning into another episode of The Student Lawyer Podcast. And we'll see you back again here next time. To hear more of The Student Lawyer's podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.